Good morning and welcome to our morning worship service this morning here at uh, West Houston Bible Church. It's good to see everybody this nice, cool morning in the weather. Great out there. I had the opportunity to go up for a little reunion in Nacogdoches the last couple of days and came back when I left there yesterday. It was 40, about 47 degrees, so it didn't get quite. It was 66 when I got here, so the front was just getting here, but it was just wonderful. A couple of uh, main announcement is that the picnic is this coming Saturday, and so y'all can pray that it won't be quite as warm as some of the weather guessers have uh, prognosticated, So, uh, but we'll have a great time anyway. I think there's about 20 to 30 people coming from uh, Country Bible Church in Brenham to join us, so uh, looking forward to that and opportunity to fellowship with them. Also, at the end of the service, uh, we're going to leave a little time, and uh, Alan's just going to... Uh, go over a brief report, so b- nobody leave. It's going to be very brief, very quick, and uh, just to let everybody know what's go- uh, what's going on. Scripture teaches that we are to come together to worship God in a manner and way according to how he has laid things out in the Scripture. In John chapter 4, Jesus met with the woman at the well, and in that conversation, He stated that worship in the future to him would not be at a central sanctuary in Jerusalem or in Samaria, but would be throughout the world, and that worship would be according to the principles of uh, by means of the Spirit, worship according to the Spirit, and by means of truth. Truth meaning it is grounded in the Word of God, and by means of the Spirit means that Unlike the Old Testament dispensations, it would be based on believers who are walking by the Spirit. That is related to the concept of being filled by the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18, which is related to being in fellowship. 1 John 1.9 states that if we confess our sins, which means simply to admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father, if we admit our sins, God is faithful and just, to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure they're in fellowship and ready to worship, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, we're so thankful that we can be here this morning to focus upon you that in the midst of a world that seems to have gone wrong in so many, many, many ways, we know that that you are steadfast and stable. And the chaos in the world around us is actually no different than it has always been. It may be a little different in degree than at some other times, but maybe not so much as other times. It's just we're more aware of it because of the media and other communication techniques. But we know that you are in control. And whether the crises that we face are personal and have to do with those we love, those who are in our families, those around us, or our personal circumstances, whether it's personal or whether it has to do with the nation, we know that you are in control. And, Father, on this particular Sunday, which is being called the Pulpit Freedom Sunday in this country, we recognize that the, one of the most important freedoms that we have is freedom of speech and freedom to worship according to the dictates of our conscience without government interference. And yet there are uh, laws on the books that do threaten this. And, Father, in light of all of this, we pray for our nation, 
We pray for this election coming up. We pray that during this administration that you would interfere with their plans and their policies, which are harmful to this nation, that you would continue to watch over and protect this nation, and that this administration and its policies would be short-lived due to their overthrow at the next election and their removal from office, and that the people in this country who understand the truth would truly rise up and cast their ballots and be involved in this election and cast out those who are against the Constitution, against freedom, and against the truth of your word. And, Father, we pray for us today that as we worship you, that our focus will be upon you and upon your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Stand for our first hymn, number 234, Crown Him with Many Crowns. Please stand. Sunday, I'll say a little bit about its, its origin and nature a little later. I thought that for our scripture reading, we would read from 1 Samuel chapter 8. So if you wish to read along with me, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8 is one of the chapters in the Bible that is foundational for understanding the nature of freedom in any nation, in any culture, because it is at the time when Israel has demanded of Samuel that he anoint a king. Up to this point, Israel was ruled by uh, judges that God had raised up. It was basically, it was a theocracy, and God was the ultimate ruler in Israel. But with the demand for a king, there would be certain changes, and God warns them of these changes, that as more power accumulates to central government, there is more loss of freedom to the individual. And so the negative consequences of centralized power are spelled out in these verses. So I will begin reading from verse uh, I think I'll begin reading from verse 6 down to the end of the chapter. This is following their request for a king. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore heed their voice, however you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties, will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers, And he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain. This would be an additional 10% uh, tithe on top of that. the three already laid out in the Mosaic Law. He will take a, so it's increased taxation. 
He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep, and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but we will have a king over us. See, that's the negative side of democracy, people choosing the wrong thing. No, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice and make them, make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Every man go to his city. We need to take heed to that warning of the, what happens when power goes to a government. So our second hymn this morning is hymn number 415, He Giveth More Grace. No matter what our circumstances are, no matter what happens in any election, the real issue is that God controls history and his grace supplies our every need. Please stand for hymn number 415. God is the one who supplies our every need, and not only has he given us everything we need, everything that is necessary for us to accomplish his plan spiritually, but also physically. He provides our every resource. And this is the basis for understanding the biblical teaching on giving, that giving is part of our worship. It is a responsibility of every believer to support the teaching of God's word. Priority should be upon the local church and upon missionaries who go forth teaching uh, God's word, both here and abroad. The principle, the foundation for all giving is grace, that God has given freely to us, We give not to get from him, but because he has already given to us and supplied our every need. Scripture says, as every man purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. As the men come forward to take up the offering, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we're thankful for these gifts. We're thankful for all that you have provided for us. We're thankful for many faithful believers who have Uh, given for the support of the teaching of your word throughout the world and the impact that has had throughout the ages, but especially for this local church and for your grace toward us. And, Father, we pray that you would continue to bless these gifts and our ministry, that we might go forth faithfully teaching your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing 
is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance and direction on us this morning. Father, we're thankful for all that you have given us. We're thankful for your word that sheds light upon reality. It's only in the light of your word that we can really understand the nature of our lives, who we are. It's only in the light of your word that we can come to know you and understand who you are and all that you have given to us in grace. And Father, we live in a world that, because of Adam's sin, is horribly corrupted, horribly out of kilter with the way you have designed things, and that people are profoundly and deeply corrupted as well. And because of that, we all need to understand grace and what it means to live with one another in grace and in love. And Father, because we are all sinners and we're all fallen and we all have a predilection to live only for ourselves. And it is only through your word that we have any real hope, only through your word that we can come to overcome the selfishness, the self-absorption of our own nature, our own culture, and that we can truly, truly begin to experience the kind of life that Jesus promised us, a life that is abundant, a life that experiences real freedom, a freedom of the soul, a freedom from the tyranny of the sin nature. And Father, above all things, above all places where this has an impact is in our homes and in our marriages. And Father, we pray that as we continue our study today that you would uh, enable us, strengthen us to understand these things, that we might have the courage, the honesty, the objectivity to see where your word reveals to us the flaws, the failures in our own thinking, in our own lives, and in our own relationships. And we pray that we might have the spiritual courage to be obedient to you and to be, live our lives steadfast upon your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we're continuing our study on marriage based on Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 to 21. In these few verses, we see a focus upon foundational arenas of, of, of life. Uh, in Colossians 3.18, Wives are addressed. Submit to your husbands, to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Colossians 3.19, husbands, love your wives as, and do not be bitter toward them. Colossians 3.20, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. What we see in these verses, as I've been pointing out in the previous lessons, is that at the foundation of these verses, we have the principle of authority. That in marriage, in the family, in the home, there is an authority structure that we have learned from Genesis 1 and 2 was built into the nature of marriage as a divine institution and into the family before there was sin. Sin just mucked everything up. Sin just made it extremely difficult to 
uh, apply these principles within our lives because the sin nature itself is a inner corruption that permeates everything in our being, affects our thinking, affects the culture around us, and drives us to a complete self-absorption, a complete focus upon having my needs satisfied and, and controlling this now chaotic world so that it is under my control and not someone else's control so that I can have some form of stability because uh, things are going my way and the way I think they should go. And that's the, that's the essence of sin. But the scriptures teach that there are, there are true, true changes that can take place. Now, the foundation for authority, as I've pointed out, is in God, in the person of God, and especially this applies to believers because we're in the image, because an, excuse me, to all human beings because we're all created in the image of God. God is one, the scripture says, but this is a oneness that is a unity in singular, a unity of three in, in the Godhead. So we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are all equally God, but they are, they are distinct from one another, but they are fully God. None is superior to the other. The Father does not know more than the Son. The Son does not know more than the Holy Spirit. But nevertheless, God has distinct roles for each one, and it is in those roles that we see a parallel to human beings because we live in marriages where husbands and wives are equal in their being. They are fully human. They are each equally in the image of God. They equally have value in the sight of God as human beings, as individual persons, and yet God has distinguished their roles. Yet that is something, uh, that is a message that is not received well in our culture. At the end last time, just as a brief review before we go forward, I pointed out that uh, a comparison and contrast between the original creation, what happens at the fall, and the current recovery, redemption, solution that God has. For the woman, she was originally created to be a co-ruler with Adam, equal in the, as an image of God, but her role was to assist. God gave the original orders and commission to Adam and he then created Isha, the woman that was her name at the time, to help or assist Adam. This is not a, though it's a role of subordination, it is not an inferior role in any way, shape, or form. She was to help him in ruling the earth and multi- fulfilling the command to multiply and fill the earth. The judgment was that she would have a cruel desire to rule, to dominate her husband, implying that she would have a trend towards rejecting the husband's authority. She would have increased pain and and sorrow in relation to birth. But in redemption, as a believer, she can overcome those sinful trends and submit to her husband as is fitting to the Lord. For the man, he was to be a co-ruler, but he was the leader. He was to guard and keep the garden and to also multiply and fill the earth. 
as a result of the curse, as a result of sin, that labor, the responsibility he fulfilled before in perfect environment was now in fallen, corrupt environment, and responsible labor would become toil. There would be opposition from creation, thorns and thistles, the ground would fight him. There would always be a struggle in order to provide for the family, the sweat of your brow. And yet the solution under uh, under the divine solution and redemption that he is to love his wife as Christ loved the church, and he is not to be embittered against her. So this is the function in perfect environment. There was role distinction, yet equality. In sinful worldly environment, there is an authority struggle, a competition, an inordinate competition that is entered into the marriage so that the woman seeks to be the leader. The man often has a trend towards just abdicating his responsibility and going off into his man cave to do his own thing. And this is a result of, of his following the trend of his sin nature. But there is spiritual recovery where the two can come together as a coordinate team to fulfill the role and the purpose of God. So in conclusion, I pointed out that authority, biblically authority as a principle is intrinsically good. It was Number two, it was never designed as a solution to the chaos of sin. It preceded sin. Number three, subordination is not intrinsically bad, as people are taught today in our culture, but it reflects the need for order and mutual dependence. Fourth, the belief that submission implies inferiority is an assault on the Trinity, the whole concept of the Trinity, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the cross, and therefore it in and of itself is an assault on the foundation of all biblical teaching. This is why we have these, we have identified these foundational uh, institutions that God embedded. The, these are universal laws, universal realities God embedded within the makeup of human being. They are social realities and social laws. Often we hear today in politics that there's a distinction between economic conservatives on the one hand or social conservatives on the other hand, as if an insistence on certain social absolutes, such as personal responsibility, marriage as an institution between one man and one woman, and other social aspects of responsibility, as if, if, if these are somehow negotiable, but economics is not. And what we see in the scripture is that God established certain social realities as universal laws, universal absolutes prior to the fall. They are still in effect, but we struggle with their implementation because of sin. The first three we call divine, of the divine institutions that we focus on are a personal responsibility. Every human being is responsible and accountable to authority. Every individual is accountable to God personally. Number two, the second divine institution is marriage between one man and one woman. Not, uh, it cannot be redefined as, as a union between any two people who love each other or any three people who love each other or four people or whatever the case may be. Marriage is one man and one woman united together, and that cannot be changed. And when we have an administration a political administration, and a political party that takes the position of endorsing homosexual marriage, gay marriage as a, a, a social 
socially viable concept, then every Christian must vote against that. That is a clear directive from Scripture. We can philosophize about a lot of different things politically and governmentally, but there are certain absolutes that we must use as criteria for evaluating any and all candidates. And these ultimately come down to these uh, five divine institutions, the third of which is family. The first three are created before the fall, before their sin, and then the next two come afterward. These are divine institution number four, which is uh, human government, which is grounded upon the uh, covenant with Noah, which authorizes a, a, a political entity, some kind of entity, to determine judicial guilt in the matter of murder. And when murder takes place, the penalty was capital punishment. It was death. That is the most serious judicial, judicial act possible. And so all of the judicial concepts related to government derive from that because they are of lesser significance. So the Noahic covenant is considered to be the foundation for human, for principles of human government, and, and that did, there were not nations at that time. Nations do not come until some two or three hundred years later at the Tower of Babel as God judged that attempt at universalism, internationalism, an early form of the League of Nations or the United Nations, uh, it was against God, and so God brought judgment and divided the nations by giving everyone different languages. This forced them to isolate themselves in different tribal groups based on languages, who they could understand, and this led to eventually the development of tribes, nations, things of that. This must continue to be honored so. When we look at politicians, when we look at government officials, when we look at uh, political parties that do not endorse personal responsibility for all issues in life, and by that we have a perfect example in the, uh, the mandate related to uh, universal health care and the uh, health care law, this violates divine institution number one, along with many, many other policies of this particular administration and the party he represents. In divine institution number two, the president himself has uh, now taken the position that homosexual marriage is a good thing, and the party he stands for espouses the same view. And this is always indicated by a rejection of God, which... oh by mistake, got became known as they slipped the name of God. Not that it meant anything. We all know that it really didn't mean anything for the Democrats to have the word God in their platform. But at least it gave them a little window dressing and a little cover that they weren't the pagan atheist in their, in their basic creed. Not that they're all pagan and atheist, but that their creed, the creed of liberalism, an alternative religion, is basically built on the principles of atheism, agnosticism, and secularism. And any party that builds its principles on those three, uh, three legs is against God and against the Bible. I don't care how much religious window dressing they have. And so in terms of the second divine institution, this Democrat party and the uh, president 
are against the divine institutions by the tax laws that they enact they and by many of the other laws that they have put into place they demonstrate that they are against the cohesion of the family so they're against the first three foundational divine institutions and on the fourth divine institution when it comes to principles of human government the judiciary the appointment of the various judges that this president and his administration have appointed also reveal that they appoint judges. This is one of the most important issues. I don't care how bad the opponent, you may think the opponent is. I don't care how big a problem you think his religion may be. I don't think how big a problem you might think other aspects of his uh, views are. Um, the reality is that, that, that he is going to appoint men and women to the judiciary that will have lifelong appointments and that will make, for the most part, better decisions than those who are appointed by President Obama and his administration. And if for no other reason, we should not continue uh, to allow this administration and this president to stay in office because can you imagine, now I don't know if there's anyone here who would like this, but can you imagine having someone like Eric Holder on the Supreme Court? He will destroy, he is destroying this nation as the Attorney General and he would definitely be a part of the, the, the final wooden stake through the heart if he were on the Supreme Court. So we, that must be stopped at all, at all costs and all measure. So again and again, uh, principles that violate the fourth divine ins institution are, are, are promoted by this nation, this this government, and they affirm and constantly are giving more authority to the UN. They believe in international government and international solutions rather than maintaining uh, the strict identity of uh, autonomous nations, and so. Uh, on the fifth divine institution, he is at fault. So he has five strikes against him. And that means that he should never be considered for any office above dog catcher, and even that is dubious. Hope I've made myself clear. Now, that's about as far as I'm going to go in relation to this pulpit freedom Sunday. Just so you know what the issue is here, in um, 1954... Uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, and most of you know that he was uh, as much as much a problem as anything, especially as a Texas politician. But in 1954, he proposed a change, an amendment uh, to the law related to banning 501c3 tax-exempt organizations from participating in any political campaign on behalf of any candidate for public office. His amendment had a reason at that time. It was not directed against churches. It was directed, though, it was in the heat of the anti-communist crusade in the early 50s, and he was really directing his focus against certain conservative anti-communist uh, organizations that were 501c3 organizations such as Facts Forum and the Committee for Constitutional Government and some other organizations but the unintended consequence was that his the word changing he proposed for the law, which uh, was quickly voted on without any opposition, was a change that would also impact uh, churches. 
and many, many churches have become identified as 501c3 tax-exempt organizations. For those of you who, did, who are the products of public education and did not get taught the Constitution, the freedom of the pulpit and the tax-exempt status of a church is guaranteed by the First Amendment and the Constitution, not the IRS and not their 501c3 tax-exempt education organizations. Now, secondary religious organizations such as Dean Bible Ministries or uh, Bible colleges or seminaries or camps are not considered churches. And they have to file as 501c3 organizations in order to have a tax-exempt status. But churches are guaranteed to be tax-exempt because they're a church, not because they're a 501c3 organization. And the way the IRS and their totalitarian, tyrannical, dictatorial uh, techniques seek to control churches is by saying that, and some of you may not know this, but pastors are among one of the protected groups that can conscientiously object. Now, some of you think that's a bad word, but it's not. It depends on what they're objecting to. But pastors can conscientiously object to the socialism of the Social Security program. And if within 18 months of their ordination they file paperwork, then they do not have to participate in Social Security taxes, and they don't have that taken out of their pay, which has guaranteed the the possibility of pastors for many, many small churches in this country over the past 50 years because many churches are not able to pay a pastor a, a, a survivable wage if they have to take out and pay for the Social Security tax or for the self-employment tax and pay all of that, and many pastors cannot. So many, many pastors have opted out of the Social Security system as a as a conscientious objector, so that they can retain the money that they have earned and take the responsibility before God for their own, their own future. However, the IRS, for the last 40 years, uh, has, ha, looks at a pastor's ordination, and if he is not ordained by a 501c3 church, then they do not recognize his ordination. That is tyranny, and that is a violation of the law, but nobody will, will, challenge, will challenge that. So that's one of the ways they control this, and they put out this myth that churches have to become 501c3 organizations in order to uh, be recognized as tax-exempt or to be able to ordain uh, pastors. So this is just part of the nastiness that goes on with this whole 501c3 thing. Anyway, the wording of that Johnson Amendment is what is at stake because that could be applied to churches. It has not been applied to churches. Only one church has ever had their uh, tax-exempt status revoked because of something that has they have said uh, um, that they have said uh, about politics, and that was a church in New York in the 1990s that took out a full-page ad in a local newspaper saying that a vote for Bill Clinton was a vote for the devil. They lost their tax-exempt status for 24 hours, and that's the only time that has ever happened in history, that there is no law 
fact, throughout history, pulpits in this nation have consistently addressed social and political issues and have been uh, and addressed who should be voted for and who should not be voted for on a Christian basis. However, if you're not of the right ethnicity, this usually is uh, seen to be a problem. Certain groups seem to be able to say whatever they wish without this becoming a problem. This is just part of the distorted values of our era. But I want to point out on this issue of marriage before we move on that this issue, among all of the others related to the divine institutions, is a crucial issue, and no Christian who has any sense of the Bible... I'm not saying that the alternate candidate is a Christian. He, as far as his assertions and affirmations of his beliefs in Mormonism are concerned, that, that he would not be. It's not about that. It is affirming these universal principles for believers and unbelievers alike that we identify as the divine institutions. And the Republican candidate, for the most part, he may not be as, go as far as many of us would like, but for the most part, he affirms the divine institutions and these establishment laws, whereas the, the Democrat candidate does not. And so a vote for the Democrats, and, and it's not just for the individual, it's the party and that platform and what they endorse. A vote for that party is a vote that runs counter to the divine institutions of Scripture. Now, as we get in, go further into our study on marriage, and just to wrap up this, what I said about authority last week, authority and submission are corrupted by sinful, by sin, sinful creatures and cultures. We live in a world that basically says, no, there's no authority over you as an individual that has a right to tell you anything about how you act as a husband or a wife. That's embedded in our culture. It's in the water that everyone drinks, so to speak. Sixth conclusion I came up with last week was the only solution for marriage and the family begins at the cross, which removes the judgment of sin, provides a foundation for understanding and restoring our, our, our uh, God-designed purposes and roles. In regeneration, the power of the sin nature is broken, but only as we grow in the uh, knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ can we come to understand what real freedom is and apply that with, within marriage. So it's only through the filling of the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18, and the rich indwelling of the Word of God in Colossians 3.16, that the corruption of sin in our thinking, our marriages, and our families can be reversed so we can truly pursue God's plan for our lives. Now, I want to address our attention this morning to this issue of authority and how that works within a marriage. Let's look at Ephesians 5.18 briefly. Notice we have the command in Ephesians 5.18, be filled, which is a present, active imper- uh, present passive imperative, rather, with the, with the Spirit. That's the command. When we are in fellowship, we are being filled with the Spirit. As I've taught many times, what does he fill us with? He fills us with the Word of God. That's Colossians 3.16. The results that follow from the command to be richly indwelt by the Word of God in Colossians 3.16 and be filled by the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18 are, are parallel. Ephesians passage, which is the parallel to what we're studying in Colossians, gives a little more detail, so I want to look at that briefly this morning. Notice that I've identified the, the, the verbal... Uh, the verbals that are used in this statement to express the results of being filled by the Spirit. 
speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our heart to the Lord. These are all participles in the Greek. Giving thanks in verse 20, again, is a participle. Then submitting to one another in the fear of God in verse 21. Some versions, some English versions, remember there's no punctuation in the original Greek. Some English versions will end, will make Ephesians 5.21 an independent sentence. And they will translate the participle as if it's a finite imperative, submit to one another in the fear of God. It might have something of a of an imperatival force, but it's really a result, stating one of the many results flowing from the command. There's this whole series of these participles, and all of them indicate results that come from walking by the Spirit, being filled by the Spirit. The verb in 521 is submitting. That is the verb that's carried over. Notice I left when I copied the <coughs> verse over from a, a, a computer program. I left the paragraph mark in there at 522. That is an English editorial decision. However, the, there's no verb in that clause in the Greek because the verb's left out because it is, it is a continuation in the Greek of the previous sentence. And so it doesn't restate the verb, the verbal, actually, the participle. Again, that participle submitting applies to both. Now, how can we know that? Well, we can know that because in the parallel passage in in, in Colossians uh, 5.17, it states it. Wives, submit to your husband. So, So we're not just making this up because that sounds like a good thing. It's there clearly in the parallel passage. So... Uh, that is, it should really be understood and punctuated something like this, submitting to one another in the fear of God, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, it really doesn't stop there, even though the English puts a period there. The next couple of verses also go into the uh, nature of this submission for the wife uh, in relation to the husband. And the thing that I want to point out for both the husband and the wife is the basis for your fulfilling these commands of God for the wives submitting to the husbands and the husbands loving their wives has absolutely nothing to do with the husbands, with the, the, the other person's behavior. It doesn't say wives submit to your husbands because he's a great guy, because he's young, because he's sexy, because he's successful, because he has a lot of money, because he treats you the way you want him to be treated, because he always responds to you the way he is to to be treated. There's no conditions there because you are to submit to him as to the Lord. You're doing it to please God, not to please him. He is actually irrelevant. He may not like that, but he's irrelevant to why you are submitting you're submitting because you're, you're obedient to God and you want to please God. It has nothing to do with him. Guys, same thing for loving your wives. They just had a moment of joy and thrill. Now it's your turn. You are to love your wife as Christ loved the church. That's a, almost an impossible standard. You can only fulfill it if you're walking by the Spirit. You are to love your, your wife as Christ loved the church And it doesn't matter whether she's young, sexy, responsible, successful, uh, responsive, any of these things. You you don't love her because of who she is. Ultimately, you love her because that's what pleases God. And you fulfill this command of God, not because she is so responsive to you and everything you want her to be, 
but it has something to do with your understanding with God. And the really convicting thing for all of us is that how we relate to our spouse says more about how we're relating to the authority of God than anything else in our lives. I don't want to dwell too long on that. It's too convicting, so we'll move on. But that is a great barometer. How you're relating to your spouse is one of the great barometers in Scripture for how you're relating to God. Now, it's easy for us to act like we're relating well to God when we go to church and when we're with other Christians, and we know a lot about the Scripture. But putting it into practice is the real barometer. Jesus in the New Testament and the law in the Old Testament both say, if you love God, you obey him. That's the measure. Not how much, how it feels, not how frequently you're in church, how often you read your Bible or any of those other things. It's obedience to God. For the, for the husband, the commands are that he's to love, uh, excuse me, for the wife, the, the rationale for her obedience is verse 23, for the husband's the head of the wife is also Christ is the head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. So the pattern is not anything in creation. It's not based on culture. It's not based on politics. It's not based on the other person's likability. It is based on a spiritual reality. So... A lot of questions come up on this. We live in a world today, as I pointed out, that really doesn't like this idea of authority. And this is part of our, our, our culture. Uh, they have uh, successfully managed to redefine marriage in the last couple of decades to something that is nothing more than a biological, sociological phenomena. We have managed as a culture to remove God from marriage, if not successfully from our political platforms. Uh, because of this, the idea among um, for almost everybody is that marriage is based on biological uh, needs. It's basically based on sex, and if marriage is based on sex and your sex drive is towards someone of the same sex, then what right do we have to change uh, our view of, uh, of marriage? So we have changed our view of marriage as in accordance with our Darwinian evolutionary presuppositions, and so we have decided that it's just biological or it's social. It's for uh, economic purposes. It's to raise children. It's uh, because it looks good with other people, whatever it may be. And we also think that marriage is designed to be a basis for emotional gratification. Once you take God out of the picture, the reason you're in that marriage is so that you can be sexually satisfied, emotionally satisfied, and that you can fit into certain uh, maybe social expectations. We have completely rejected the notion that there is a moral obligation in marriage to a higher authority because we don't like the idea in our culture that there's an authority outside of our marriage that has the right to tell us how to think and how to act and how to behave as a husband or a wife. We're, we, we, it's been drilled into us that, that we're our own boss and we're going to do marriage the way we think we ought to do marriage. We're overt about it. This problem's gone on for centuries and all the way back to the garden because, as I pointed out last time, this is part of the curse. 
And part of the curse is we all think we ought to do marriage the way we ought to, we want to do marriage. But God says you can't do marriage the way you want to do marriage because you, if you do, you're going to, it's going to be self-destructive. The only way that you can have, um, uh, fulfill the objectives of marriage as I laid them out, which has to do with the original creation covenant, is to be obedient to me. And when our focus is on God from both the husband and the wife, then the one of the results of that is that there can be real joy and happiness in the marriage. But when one person operates on their sin nature, when one person is operating independently of God, then there's gonna, they're going to bring misery into that marriage. And that's true for any, any organization, any social, uh, social union. We live in a culture today that has rejected Christian marriage as just an antiquated form of bondage or slavery because today we have elevated personal rights, my right to happiness, my right to emotional well-being is more important than anything else. And sadly, among many churches, they are beginning to fall prey to this and to teach this. And at the core of this, as I pointed out before, is this issue of the relation of authority. And I developed years ago observations related to, uh, related to understanding how authority and leadership and submission work together. Because too often when we hear pastors or preachers or teachers talk about submission, because this word is used in other contexts of a master to a slave or in military contexts, it doesn't relate to a marriage. Because the connection between a sergeant and a private, the relationship of a general to a second lieutenant, may be similar in terms of authority, but they're not the same in terms of unity and in terms of that marriage teamwork relationship. And so these create problems because we tend to uh, think of submission only in those kinds of top-down scenarios. Now, that will work well if you're a Muslim, but it's not the Christian idea because in Christianity there is a... Uh, a horizontal unity between the husband and the wife because they're both in the image of God and they're both uh, uh, a team members of the same team focusing on the same objective. And so there's a unity there that you don't have in some of these other, other analogies. And so the analogy that I developed is thinking about dancing. Now, I don't know how, if any of you have ever taken any formal lessons in dancing or spent much time dancing. I'm not talking about a lot of modern forms of dancing where uh, basically everybody gets out on the floor and does their own thing independent of the other person. That is how most people today do marriage. They get out on the floor together and each one does their own thing. And if by chance there is any coordination between them, it is simply accidental and by chance. But in... Uh, dancing where you have uh, couples dancing, where the two people have to learn to dance together and follow certain external rules and guidelines in order to create anything in terms of grace and beauty, then they have to learn the principles of authority. And it, but it's teamwork. It's not the, the kind of authority relationship you have between a sergeant and a private. 
it is much closer than that. You have two people who come together, and as they spend more and more time working together, they learn to move as one. And yet the male is the leader, and the female is the follower. And years ago, when I took uh, uh, dance lessons for a long time, I thought it was a great source of observation on people. Because as I would dance, I was in a lot, it was a large group and we constantly changed, uh, changed partners as we were dancing as the way they taught. It was interesting. I could, within five steps, I could always pick out the, the feminist because she was back leading. She had a really hard time following the man's lead. And you could also pick out the wimpy men because they had a hard time communicating their leadership to their partner. And over time, I would spend time talking to, we danced a lot, and we would often go out uh, late in the afternoon, early evening, and just, you know, a lot of the uh, dance places had happy hours, and we weren't going there for that purpose. We'd go there to dance. We'd get on the dance floor and go for like two hours, and it was a great form of exercise. We'd never stop. And always, and a lot of us in the class would meet, and we would, and I would talk. I had two or three ladies that I frequently danced with, actually performed the wedding for one of them. Uh, so there was no, no romantic relationship there. It was simply a, 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 a dancing function. And they would tell me about other guys in the class. Well, I hate dancing with that guy. He, his leads are too strong. He's going to break my arm. And I don't like dancing with that guy because his leads are indiscernible and I don't know how to, what, what he expects. And if I try to talk to them, their ego is so involved because they think they're such great dancers that if I try to help them, they don't listen. They just get mad at me. And I thought, wow, that sounds like a lot of couples I've talked to in marriage counseling. <laughs> what an analogy. This is really great. And, and, it's, and it is very very true. So I developed the Doctrine of the Dance, subtitled Lessons Learned About Marriage from Dancing. Background for this, biblically, is that dancing is used throughout the scriptures as a picture of joy and happiness. And so often in poetry, dancing is used in a metaphorical way to communicate joy. Uh, Mourning is used often to communicate death. And so the idea in Lamentations 5.15 is the joy of our heart or the dancing has ceased. The joy of our heart has ceased. Our dancing has turned to mourning. Or as one writer who paraphrases says, our dance has turned to death. And sadly, this is what reflects the state of a lot of marriages. There's no joy there anymore. Their dance has turned to death. But we need to learn how to dance. And by that I mean we need to learn how to have a good marriage that follows the principles of Scripture. So I'm going to run through these points fairly, fairly quickly. First of all, dancing involves teamwork. Some people have said that, well, marriage can't be a team. Yes, it is. A t- it's a team. Every team has a leader. I mean, you go, you go down to the community park and play pickup basketball. In two minutes, those guys that get together have a leader on the team. You get down and go out and play sandlot softball or baseball, there's a leader within a couple of minutes. You play uh, just a pickup game of football or whatever, there's always a leader. Every, every group, you get three people together, there's going to be a leader. You get two people together, one's going to be a leader, one's going to be a follower. That's, that's 
the nature of human reality. But dancing involves teamwork with clearly defined rules and roles for each member of the team. And you go down to any of the dance studios, nobody questions that. The man leads, the woman follows. But how do they do that so they come together and create a work of art? Two people can't, point number two, two people cannot dance together without a common goal. That's just a basic scriptural principle. Uh, Amos 3.3 in the King James says, How can two walk together unless they are in agreement? The goal of marriage between two believers is to produce a union of two lives, which brings glory to God and is a testimony of God's divine grace before the human race and the angels in the angelic conflict. The goal of marriage is not personal satisfaction. The goal of marriage is not personal happiness. The goal of marriage is not getting what you would like to get out of marriage unless what it is that you would like to get out of marriage is a marriage that glorifies God. Unfortunately, in many, many marriages, the goal is not the biblical goal. And if you're a believer in an unfortunate marriage where you want to glorify God but the other person doesn't, then you need to just stick it out. You never know how long it may take until there's a change. Scripture says it, we don't have a pagan view of marriage where you try it out for a while, and if, it's, if it starts getting tough, it must not be God's will. I'm going to bounce over to this other marriage and then bounce over to another marriage because it takes time to, to grow and to become a good dancer. Some people have some things squared away. They can do it quicker than others. Others, it may take a lifetime. And those where it may take a lifetime, you can't get frustrated and quit early just like anything else in life. Something we all, some things we all do in life demand, as my mother used to say, stick to Without that, you'll never be successful. You just can't get quit because things aren't going the way you'd like. Point number three, like any team, dancing has specifically defined roles for the two participants. The male's the leader, the woman's the follower. That means the man initiates plans, directs the movement of the woman. That's hard for a lot of women because, see, they have to do everything the man does, but they have to do it backwards. And they don't see it coming. So this is great for women. This is the, the idea that women are, are submissive says, ladies, you're quicker, you're more responsive, responsive, and you're sharper than the guy because you've got to do it when he initiates. And he doesn't, you know, he's the one who's planning it out, thinking it out ahead of time. He's got a time lead. You don't. You're quick. You can do it. Fourth point, in the dance, the leader and follower positions are not related to the skill level of the dancers. The male leader may be less graceful and skilled than the partner, yet she yields to his leadership in grace. In other words, ladies, your husband may have a lower IQ, lower success rate. He may have a lot of problems. He may not be spiritually positive. There may be lots of problems there, but his leadership is not related to who he is as a person, what he's accomplished as a person, his IQ, his spiritual focus. It's not related to anything. It's related to that's the position God God put him in. And... Leader, yielding to his leadership has to do with your relation to God, not him. Fifth point, in dancing, each person has specific footwork that must be learned and practiced 
in order to develop grace and fluidity. It's not going to come natural for a wife to submit to her husband, or for it's not going to come natural for the husband to be a good leader. There are some men for whom it may take many years before they develop the skills to be good spiritual leaders in the home. So ladies, what are you supposed to do? Pray for him every single day. Encourage him. Don't try to back lead him. Don't try to push him forward. Pray for him. Let God be the one who provides uh, provides the solution. Just like in the Christian life, it takes hours to grow as a as a Christian. Some people do it easier than others because they grew up in a Christian home. They had parental discipline that guided them. Others didn't have that. Everybody's different. But spiritual growth, spiritual maturity doesn't happen overnight. In fact, for most of us, spiritual growth and spiritual maturity are built on millions and millions of failures and sins. Same thing happens in a marriage, folks. Just because there are mistakes doesn't mean you can't go forward. It's from the mistakes that we learn. It's from the mistakes that if we're humble, if we're not arrogant, if we're not self-absorbed, we can learn to go forward and to grow and to mature, and the end result can be absolutely fabulous. Point number six, in dancing, the male, through good leads, can make his partner look graceful and keep her from making mistakes. It's part of leadership. He doesn't break her wrist in the process. He doesn't step on her toes in the process. He has to learn to balance uh, strength with gentleness in, in communicating that lead. And in so that when she doesn't really understand what's going on, he can firmly guide her into doing what he wishes her to do. And many times, even if a woman doesn't know the steps or the maneuver, if she can relax and let him guide her, she'll do it anyway. But he can't do it too strong, and he can't do it too weak. But it's going to be different for every partner, guys. So you have to recognize and learn and study your wife because you have to understand how to lead your wife not somebody you dated not in high school, not somebody you dated in college, not somebody else that you know, but you have to learn what's right for your wife because she may take less of a lead than someone else, more of a lead. You have to learn and study, uh, study your wife so that you can communicate that to her. If your leads are too strong, some men are this way. If your leads are too strong, and you become you're demanding and you're tyrannical. That's not helpful. If your leads are too weak, you're not a leader. You're not communicating anything. She doesn't have a clue what you expect of her. Okay. So you have to learn how to lead, how to focus, how to communicate that. And if she is a willing and helpful partner in this, then she will give you guidance and feedback. And you have to have the humility and the lack of ego 
to accept what she says is true. Because if you think you've communicated something to your spouse and they don't respond, they haven't listened or they haven't heard. And if you as a male are trying to get your lead, your wife, and she says, you know, I'm just not getting the message, it's not because she doesn't want to get the message. Now, there, there are some that are that way. But it may not be that she doesn't want to get the message. It may be that you think you're leading and you're not. It's not coming across. You're a wimp. You're, you're not communicating that. Your lead's too weak. Some men, their lead's too strong, and you're just intimidating, scaring, and overpowering your wife. And, and you're too demanding. And, and you can't do that either. That's going to destroy your spirit and destroy who she is. So you have to learn to balance. And that, uh, that can only come through spiritual growth. Seventh point. The male is the leader, plans and initiates the various moves, but he must always be thinking five or six steps ahead. He must be thinking about where they're going on the dance floor, where other people or obstacles exist, and how to avoid them. He must maintain control because the woman cannot see where they are going. This implies that the man, as part of the leadership role, understands Christian marriage and where the couple is going, even if the wife doesn't. It also means that it's helpful in the planning and initiating where you're going to go and what you're going to do that you take into account what your partner can do and can't do. Because if she can't follow your leads to get there or those particular moves you have in mind, then it's not going to go well. So just because you think you want to go from point A to point B a certain way, that may not be a way that your partner can go. You have to think, you have to know your partner and you have to plan ahead. Eighth point. In the dance, the leader must learn and study his partner to know how to lead her effectively. As a leader in the home and as an expression of aggressive personal love, sometimes the, the husband uh, overpowers the wife. He's got to learn and study his wife so that he can lead her effectively. It involves communication. It involves developing the ability men to listen to your wife and understand what she skills, what she what she says, and honing your own skills of observation. That relates to the ninth point. The man must learn to listen to his partner. She and she alone knows how he is leading. Guys, that's a tough one. The only person in the world who can really tell you how you are leading as a husband is your wife. And if what she says isn't what you want her to say, it's not her problem. It's your problem. And you need to listen to her. If she wants the right thing, then she's going to be telling you the truth, whether you like it or not. And you may not like it, but but you can't just say, well, you're just not listening. You're just not following. It's your fault. No. You've got to learn to listen. It's humility. You've got to listen to your partner. It works the other way, too. Tenth, the woman must learn to communicate to the man without challenging his tender male ego. See, ladies, you've got to learn how to do it right. If you, if you do it wrong with him, you're just going to make him mad, and you're going to challenge his ego, and next thing you know, you just got a big mess. So you've got to learn how to say, well, why don't you try it this way, without seeming to be suggesting that he doesn't really know what he's doing. That doesn't happen overnight. 21-year-olds usually can't do that very well. 
So the woman has to learn to communicate to the man without challenging his ego. She has to learn how to communicate, when he will listen, how little to communicate at a time, how much you can tell him. Sometimes it's just a little bit at a time. It just takes time. Eleventh point. The woman must learn to let the man lead. That means you have to learn to let him fail. Ooh, we don't like that. We don't like to learn his learn from his bad decisions, do we? We don't like to learn from the other. We, you know, my bad decisions. Okay, that, I understand that. I screwed up. Okay, I'll learn from my bad decisions. But I don't want to have to suffer from your bad decisions. Then why did you get married? Why did you have a family? You start having kids, you're going to learn a lot from their bad decisions. We always learn a lot from, or we always have to deal with the results of other people's bad decisions. So, ladies, you have to learn to let the man lead. And that means you can't second-guess him. If he's going to learn to stand up on his own two feet and become a good leader in the home, then he's going to learn that through making a lot of mistakes. And you've got to learn to keep your mouth shut Forget about it afterwards. Don't say, I told you so. Don't nag him. Things like that. Twelve, the woman may be unaware of where the man is going and of his plans, so she must constantly be ready to respond and shift according to the lead. This is why I said earlier, women have to do everything the man does, but they have to do it backwards and quickly. If you become self-absorbed, then arrogance will take over and you'll become inflexible. And the result leads to a breakdown in the marriage. Thirteenth point. I think I skipped one. The woman must continue to follow as best you can without... Oh, the woman can uh, continue to follow as best you can no matter how faulty his leadership may be. If the man's a failure in his leadership, you can still be successful in your role. Because your role as being a godly wife is not dependent upon him being a godly husband. Guys, your role as being a godly husband is not dependent upon your wife being a godly wife. God set it up so that we can each pursue excellence in our obedience to God, even if the other person is doing things that are wrong. But it's better if we're both doing it right. Fourteenth, trouble starts when you quit thinking and start emoting. This can happen on the dance floor. All of a sudden, you start getting into the music. You quit thinking about what you're doing. The emotion's great, but as soon as you quit thinking about the steps and as soon as you quit thinking about responding and paying attention to everything, especially as you're learning, you can, it, it falls apart very quickly. So you can't take each other for granted, and you can't think that certain things uh, will just happen on their own. Nothing in a sin-corrupted world happens by itself. You have to work at it. You're working against a corrupt world. Fifteenth, success ultimately is based on consistency and practice. You always make mistakes. You step on the other person's toes. They step on yours. Things like that happen. Uh, Sometimes things can get really look almost hopeless. But with God, there's always hope. But if one person is operating on the sin nature and arrogance, not to mention two, then it's going to be very hard to have success. Sixteenth, as two people work together, Mutual respect and admiration develop. Confidence increases. And as a result of that, they can go forward. And there can be, there can be growth, 
and there can be uh, maturity. But what is, it, what is it based on? Number one, you have to understand what your role is. Number two, you have to have humility. Number three, you can't let your ego get in the way. Number four, you can't let your personal desires get in the way. Number five, you can't impose things from outside that are not relevant. Only God can give us the abilities to really deal with the things we need to do. So only on that basis can we go forward. That's the challenge. It starts with each of us having a good personal spiritual life. And it also is dependent upon a willingness to to exercise grace toward the failures of the other person and forgiving them. Without that, there's no hope. And if it's not working in one relationship, it's not going to work in any other relationship. And the problem isn't them, it's us. And we'll close in prayer in just a minute. Uh, when we stand to sing our closing hymn, the deacons will pick up the um, uh, this little financial statement we wanted to pass out, and Alan will be up here to quickly explain it, and then we'll we'll finish up. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your grace and goodness to us, for your word that helps us to understand how we are to live with other sinful, fallen creatures that are often as susceptible to failure, if not more so than, than we are, and, and we fail a lot. Father, help us to implement your word, to have humility and deal with people in grace. Father, we thank you for your goodness to this congregation, for all that you provided for us. And Father, we look forward to the ways in which you're going to work in our lives to mature us as the days go by. Father, we're thankful that um, for all who are here this morning, we pray that there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin so that all you have to do is trust in him. Scripture says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us. And he does that when we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That's all that's required. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, Father, we pray that you would... Uh, watch over us as we travel home. Watch over those who are away for this three-day weekend that will return to us safely. We pray that we might have the humility to apply what we've learned today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand for our closing hymn, number 52, O God, Our Help in Ages Past. When we finish, then Alan will explain the um, uh, this brief financial statement very quickly, and then he will close in prayer. Okay, please stand.